This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What came first out there in space? Was it water or the sun? Turns out, could be water. I mean, first of all, how, how do we even figure this out? I have so many questions about it. So let's get started in talking about this research. Dr. John Tobin's with us now, lead researcher and associate scientist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Dr. Tobin, thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. First off, let me ask you, what did come first, water or the sun? Uh, water ended up coming first, surprisingly enough. Okay, how do you even start to figure that out? Oh, well... We- we have to look at uh, how water actually forms in the first place, and water forms most efficiently when it's in the cold interstellar medium. And so this is in the gas between stars, and there's little particles in the interstellar medium we call dust grains, and the atoms and molecules will stick to those dust grains, and they'll find each other on that dust grain, and they will react and form water. So that was floating out there in space, perhaps before the sun was created? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, the the reason we think that it was before the sun was created is because uh, a special form of water, which is made up of a hydrogen atom and, and a deuterium atom and an oxygen atom. So that's different than our normal H2O water. That only forms uh, very efficiently in the cold interstellar medium before you have a star. And in our solar system, we find that there's a ton of this uh, semi-heavy water relative to normal water. And so those large quantities suggest to us that the water in our solar system had to have formed before before the sun. Okay, so did researchers go looking for this, Dr. Tobin, or was it more of an accidental finding? Uh, so, and researchers have been looking looking uh looking for this because i mean water is one of the most fundamental things to life on earth and i mean probably many listeners are drinking water right now in their coffee so uh understanding where water came from is a uh, very profound question and so in our case we went out and we went looking for this and we were trying to find the missing link which was finding water in a swirling disk of gas and dust that's going to be present right before the planets formed and that's what hadn't been done before okay and so did you find that yes yeah we did we did indeed find that and so we, we used the uh the atacama large millimeter submillimeter array so this is a uh, powerful radio telescope located in northern chile and uh Canada is a partner in this uh, observatory, and I have a bunch of colleagues on uh, Vancouver Island that uh, that also uh, do similar types of research. Okay, so you could say that that is that where Earth's water came from. Uh, okay, so Earth's Earth's water didn't come from the disk that we looked at, but what we were 
trying to do is we were looking for water that's out in newborn solar systems and trying to make uh, make links to what's happening out there in the forming stars that we can see and how that applies to how our own solar system formed. Right. So it could show us a bit of a, a map as to how it might have happened here. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Okay. So are there, do you think, other clouds like this out there? Oh, yeah, there there are definitely other clouds uh, like this out there. But the, the trouble is that water tends to exist as ice because these planet-forming disks tend to be really cold and the, and the water is just there in the form of ice and we can't observe that very well. This particular disk, uh, even though it has a star that's not all that dissimilar from our sun, it's putting out about 200 times the energy and so that has melted all of this water, turned it into gas and we're able to directly observe it with radio telescopes. So what does this tell us then about the potential for life elsewhere? Well, I think uh, life as we know it requires water. And uh, what what this is telling us is that when these uh, other solar systems are forming, there's going to be a ton of water available. Now, we, we don't know the full process of how you get water onto planets, even though it's there in a disk, but we know that the water is going to be there universally. And so... By, by whatever process it gets to planets, there's going to be water uh, available in these distant right. star systems. Is that the next thing that you want to look at now that, now that you've kind of seen this? Uh, well, the, observing water on other planets, I think that that is... Uh, that is a, a difficult endeavor, and I think that that's not what I'm working on, but I do, there are uh, other, other colleagues that are uh, indeed going to be working on that using the James Webb Space Telescope. Right. What other questions has this brought up for you then, Dr. Tobin, for your research? Well, uh, something I would like to know is how much variation is there in water when we look at newborn star systems. So, I mean, we looked at one particular system and I'd like to know if there's going to be much variation or is it going to be the same story everywhere? Because, I mean, nature, we think we might know what's going on, but, you know, nature always likes to to fool us. So uh, it's important to test out what we think we know. Right. Which is, that would lead us to believe, though, that there could be other planets like Earth out there, right? Like, if if that's the way the water behaves, you would think that that could be replicated. Oh yeah, that definitely. Yeah, yeah, there definitely could be other planets out there, like Earth, and planets out there that do have uh, a lot of water, like we have on Earth. Uh, indeed, in our own solar system, there are some moons, like uh, like Europa, for instance, around Jupiter, that has a lot of water. So, but it's just too cold to to be liquid. So in other, in other star systems, they might have uh, a planet that is conducive for liquid water. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. 
All right. Thank you for having me on. That's Dr. John Tobin, lead researcher and associate scientist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, talking about the fascinating work that they do. Uh, They were looking at water, water in outer space, essentially, coming to the conclusion that it looks like water is likely older than the sun uh, because they found that it is frozen out there in space. Fascinating work, right? And it continues on a daily basis, discovering more things every day. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to do our weekly check-in now with Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent, because there's been so much news that's been happening down in the United States this week, and we want to find out all about it. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, what are we going to start with? I feel like this list is so long today, but I think we should probably start with former President Donald Trump, because this drumbeat seems to be getting louder about potential criminal charges. What is this? Yeah, absolutely. And look, there are a number of investigations that are still circling around the former president. Some of them have been in the headlines as of late, and that has to do with the issues to overturn the election and what's happening with uh, the attorneys in Georgia. This one goes all the way back to 2016, and it involves Stephanie Clifford, who more people would know by the name of Stormy Daniels and the hush money payment that was made via Donald Trump through uh, Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels. Well, the Manhattan District attorney is now saying that he has invited Donald Trump to testify before a grand jury, which means that an indictment could potentially be coming. It's kind of an uphill climb still. It's 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 you know, there's no testing here to show whether or not this is going to be successful. But it does show that, you know, even stuff from the past is now coming back to haunt Donald Trump as he tries to kind of reinvigorate his political future. Oh, boy. OK, so they're not saying it's imminent, right? They're just saying it could be coming. It could be coming. The invitation to uh, to address or to speak before a grand jury is kind of a nicety that's offered to somebody uh, to let them know that these charges are coming. Donald Trump likely is not going to take this offer. He was on his social media ranting about this, calling it a witch hunt. Uh, again, you know, equating this to the Russia investigation and, and anything having to do with something that's coming after him. That doesn't mean that indictment won't come. It just means that it's not happening right now. But again, this has been a slow walk investigation that's gone on for years. And now that this is here, this could be a simply wait and wait and see kind of moment. Okay, so from the former president to the current president who is coming to Canada for a visit. And, you know, Reggie, when I looked this up, I thought back in the day, it was the first trip a U.S. president usually made when taking office was to Canada. But this is the first trip that U.S. President Biden has made to Canada. Absolutely, it is. Uh, The last time he was in Canada, uh, he was the vice president under the Obama administration. And you're right, every president since Ronald Reagan has made Canada the first or second trip uh, when it comes to a foreign destination. The obvious exception here is Donald Trump, who only showed up in Canada during the G20 summit back in 2018 and ultimately left in a bit of a huff uh, while criticizing uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, But at the end of the day, this is a big uh, trip for Biden and for Trudeau. Both of them have a very cordial relationship with each other, but there are issues of kind of mutual interest that the two need to to discuss border security, um, defense cooperation when it comes to Ukraine and and issues uh, having to do with Russia. There are issues where both are not on the same page, and some of that has to do with security in Haiti. But ultimately, this is going to be a big deal because the only meet the two of them 
on the foreign stage, whether it's in Europe or the last time was in Mexico, the fact that Biden is now coming, well, it's very late into the presidency, yeah. is going to be a huge uh, uh, kind of um, interest for Canadians. It really is for Canadians because I was surprised. I thought, boy, it used to be back in the day. Does that indicate anything, do you think, about the relationship between the two countries? I just think that it has to do with, with the scheduling around the president. Look, when he came in, COVID was still a thing. Foreign travel wasn't right. uh, really happening. And then there were some big incidents that happened overseas that required the president to be there. You know, I don't think that it's a snub to Canada. I think sometimes Canadians kind of, we think of ourselves as being so close to the U.S. So we might, you know, we're, we're thought about pretty often. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there are more pressing matters. Ultimately, the trip, it's been scheduled for months. It's been discussed for weeks. It's finally happening now. This is going to be a key moment for Ottawa and Washington to kind of iron out any wrinkles that may have existed from the beginning of this administration and through the majority of the last administration. Right. Okay. so that's happening at the end of this month, a couple of weeks from now. Uh, In the meantime, one of the other stories that I'm fascinated with reading, Reggie, and I guess this is a good warning for anybody. Don't write personal stuff on work email because you never know what court case it's going to come out with because we're certainly seeing that with Fox News. I mean, yes, uh, the Fox News January 6th uh, Dominion investigation, uh, this is big and this is consuming and this could have a multi-billion dollar impact on the bottom line for Fox News. Ultimately, what we've now found out is uh, Tucker Carlson, a primetime host with Fox News, not only saying you know that he didn't really believe and buy into any of this election nonsense, but he, that he also said that he hated Donald Trump. Yeah. Over the last couple of days, he's kind of come out to, to play nice and say nice things about the former president. But realistically, Fox News has found itself in a really damaging situation backed into a corner. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that Tucker Carlson is now trying to kind of repaint history and portray the January 6th riots as something, you know, a little bit more than a couple of people walking around uh, taking a tour of the Capitol. Senate Republicans are not happy with this. A lot of House Republicans aren't happy with this. The police aren't happy with this. Uh, you know, and it's, it's unclear what the end game is here for Fox. Yeah, but this is going to be a really closely watched one. Is that getting a lot of attention? Obviously not on Fox, but everybody else seems to be talking about it. It's getting huge attention uh, on most of the major networks, and Fox News is actually trying to ignore talking about the news that Fox News is talking about (laughs) uh, in the evening. You know, this is going to potentially be damaging to their ratings uh, in the evening. There have been rumblings about potential job changes or exits that could come with some of their primetime hosts. Obviously, none of that is confirmed. But again, this is what happens, and we talked to experts about this this week, uh, when you have opinion that is no longer opinion, it's just simply a revision of history uh, that's starting to bleed into their own news programming. At what point does Fox News no longer become Fox News? Right. Okay, that's a close one. And I do find it hard to believe that in this case and in others, like with this Jenna Ellis situation, that they're still talking about an election that happened, uh, you know, more than two years ago, two and a half years ago now. Considering that we are a year and a bit away from the 2024 election, Jenna Ellis, you know, finding herself censored uh, for the information, uh, the misinformation, the blatant lies that she was spewing in the time leading up to and after the 2020 election, uh, it was found that, you know, she was using her professional capacity to uh, to essentially espouse lies about 2020. It shows that there is um, a potential fallout here for anyone who kind of bought into that um, bogus claim of, of election fraud. And she was kind of putting 
putting that out there front and center. Now, it is worth saying that while she did kind of get wrapped on the knuckles for this, she is still doing what she can to placate Donald Trump just yesterday, kind of making fun of Mitch McConnell for the health issues that he's suffered over the last couple of days. He's now in hospital with a concussion. She was on Twitter making fun of Mitch McConnell as a way to kind of keep herself in the good grace with the Republican base and the Republican leader. Okay, and is she like what is her position these days? Well, I mean, she's still a lawyer. She still has uh, uh, she still she wasn't disbarred because of this. So she still is um, a practicing attorney in the country. The problem is, is that her past is now going to forever haunt her future. She was the one standing on stage with people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell when they were talking about these nonsensical Kraken dealing with 2020 election issues that didn't exist. That is what's now going to follow her going forward. Oh, boy. Okay. And on a final note here, I want to ask you about the number of mass shootings, because I really not all of them get publicized anymore because it's sad about that is that there's so many of them but boy this has been a bad year for them there have been 100 100 mass shootings in the united states uh through the beginning of this month that outpaces uh where things were in uh 2022 it outpaces where things were in 2021 because it wasn't until later in march that the united states hit that 100 mark the numbers get even bigger though simi 7537 people have died as a result of some form of gun violence in this country so far this year because there are a lot of shootings that may target one person, they may be self-inflicted. This is a growing problem in this country. The NRA is still standing in the way of trying to get gun legislation passed beyond what was passed in the Biden administration last year. It happens every day. It happens so regularly. You're right. It doesn't get talked about enough. There are people that are trying to change that. But until they can change that, these numbers simply only go up. Yeah, they certainly do. Now up to 102. It's crazy. Reggie, thank you so much for this. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. BC government has announced that it will become the first province in Canada to remove gendered and binary language from government regulations. But what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of work. More than 2,300 instances of outdated language will have to be amended to reflect the updated words. So let's talk about the work on being undertaken here. Adele Mercier joins us now, a professor of philosophy and linguistics at Queen's University. Uh, Thank you for joining us on this this morning. Thank you for having me. Does this show us what a big task this actually is? I mean, this is a big job they have to do. Well, frankly, I don't think it's that big a job. Once you identify the actual words that need to be changed, it's a, I'm sure a, a automation can take care of the rest, frankly. Is it about making the commitment then? Yeah, the commitment is more important. Yeah, the commitment is the hardest part of this work, and it's been taken. So that's most of the work has already been done, I would say. How has this been an influence in the legal system before now? Like, it would seem to me that having, you know, neutral language in legislation should have been the way we were always doing things. So what has been the impact of doing it this way? Uh, The impact of doing it this way, you mean, as opposed to the impact of doing it at all? Well, no, I mean, the fact that we did not have neutral language before, how did that impact the legal system? What is the difference between what they're doing now versus before? Well, um, it's going to impact things at least at the implicit level. Um, the problem with the problem with language as it stands right now is that it kind of creates a situation where uh, 
men are the, what we call in the literature, the null hypothesis. Men are the default case that you think about right. when you think things, and women are coming as an afterthought. So surely that has legal implications. Um, I mean, we know in Canada, my mother was born in Ottawa in 1927, and she was born as a non-person because women were not defined as persons in 1927. That has a big effect, a legal effect, on their uh, rights and privileges. Namely, they didn't have any. You know, when you put it that way, Adele, it makes me wonder why we haven't done this before. Well, that's a very good question. (laughs) Why haven't we done this before? Um, It's good that we're finally doing it now. It is. So is that the case, would you say, you you mentioned 1927 and that at that point being a non-person. So that has been the case then for using this gendered language all along is that it has created that that separation, hasn't it? That use of language. Yes, of course it does. I mean, women, women are disappeared in the when when masculine language serves double duty as sex neutral language women get disappeared in fact it's easy to illustrate that to your listeners if they don't know this before but i can tell you a little anecdote yeah so a man and his son are driving in a car and they they come into a terrible accident and the 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 father is killed and the son is rushed to the hospital. And the moment the doctor sees the son, the doctor says, oh, my God, I can't operate on this man. He's my son. And if you ask ordinary Canadians about this riddle, they really scratch their heads. And young people today are you know, faster at solving the riddle. But a lot of people are completely stumped by this simple story. They and, are? You no. Know, yeah. Try it. You'll see. <laughs> you know, I am. I am going to try that. But you're. You're so right. Then it is just those simple words rather than parent. Right. The the it's, fact it's that we're using that, that the male so version. So male that you don't even think of a doctor as a woman, and that's why you're stumped. You can't figure out how how can this be, and then people start giving all sorts of explanations. They have two fathers, it's a gay couple, blah, blah, blah. well, it doesn't have to be that complicated. It can but be, the yeah. language obscures the existence of women. That's the problem with the... Do you think more provinces might start to undertake this? Uh, well, I'm sure there are more and less enlightened provinces. I would hope that all of them eventually will will come around to this. It's, it's high time that this happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, thank you for that this morning. We appreciate that. You're welcome. That is Adele Mercier, who's a professor of philosophy and linguistics at Queen's University, talking about the importance of really gender-neutral language in legal proceedings, making some excellent points there. This is Mornings with Simi. This weekend, the Vancouver Whitecaps are celebrating International Women's Day, which we had this week, and they're doing it with their Women and Girls in Sport match. They will be hosting their Western Conference rivals, FC Dallas, tomorrow at 2. And you'll see something more than soccer there, actually. There's a lot of events going on to celebrate uh, women and girls in sport. But you will also see our next guest, Vancouver's very own athlete artist, Carling Jackson, who will be live painting a mural during the game and joins us now to talk about that. Carling, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This sounds really fun. Have you done something like this before? 
I actually have. I actually painted. I was the first sports artist in history to paint at the World Cup, which was in Qatar this past December. But I've never actually painted on field. So this is going to be interesting. Okay, so you're going to be on the sidelines. Yeah. Carling, doesn't that seem like you'd be a little distracted? Like you'd be watching the game. What are you going to be working on? What's the mural going to be of? So it's going to be kind of a scene of BC Place with some of our Canadian women's national teams on the pitch and then like little girls kind of in the foreground watching them play. Wow, this is going to be uh, amazing. Are you worried about the distraction? Well, I told some of the players who who actually saw it and hit me up for some artwork. I'm like, guys, just try to direct the ball, steer it away from me. You know, focus on the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please don't disturb me while I'm working over here. (laughs) Now, how did you get started doing this? I actually was a soccer player. I played for Team BC and got a Division One scholarship um, and played in the South for six years and then had three major injuries and then kind of a whirlwind of trying to find a new career and ended up painting athletes. So that's what I do full time now. Okay, wait a minute. So were you not always an artist or was this something you learned later? I was like, I won awards in high school for art, but I I didn't major in it in school. They wouldn't let me because it conflicted with practice time, like studio time. So I, I picked up a brush in 2014 and taught myself how to paint. Just like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's uh, amazing. Did you have success right away or did you look at it and think, yeah, I could do this? Yeah, I actually started as a human rights artist. Um, and then I was like, okay, people don't want to buy very sad paintings. And so I was like, what, you know, what group of people do I know really well? I know athletes. So I just started to paint. I saw that there was a bit of a hole there, a bit of a gap. Um, and I just started to, to paint, you know, the kinesthetic creativity of athletes on canvas. And it, it kind of just took off. Is it challenging to capture that, the movement of athletes on, on paint? It is, and it isn't. I think it's because I really understand it. Um, and so it's easier. And I work, I work really, really closely with the athletes who come up with one moment from their whole career that really encapsulates, you know, that gladiator emotion on the field. And so that's my favorite part. I just did one of Rich Arlison, actually, his, his the top goal of the World Cup, the bicycle kick for him. That's amazing. So is it the athletes that you said, do they come to you and say, I I would like you to paint me? Yeah, I'm the only artist in the world that's like exclusively working with pro athletes. Uh, That's pretty good. Would you say all different sports? So to date, it's been 12 sports, 23 countries in 18 weeks. Uh, That's amazing. So is there a sport that you still haven't tackled that you think this is this is your next challenge? Uh, I want to yeah, I want to do surfing and golf. Those are two I haven't I haven't painted yet. Well, why, Carling? What has been wrong with surfing and golf? Just wait. I, I have a rule. I wait for the athlete to reach out. So I, I just painted for Tyron Woodley. So he was a five-time UFC champion. That was a really cool one. So of his, all his fights, he chose this one moment. Um, so that was a new sport I just did. Okay, that's amazing. What is the key here, though, Carling? Like, how do you capture the spirit of, of someone, so of an athlete? I think, you know, you have to take on the emotion fully of whatever you're capturing, and then you have to kind of re, um, reinterpret it back onto the canvas. And actually, when I was painting Woodley, when I was painting kind of the emotion in his face, I was like, okay, I messaged him. I'm like, there's so much more going on here than the fight. Like, I feel your emotion. And he explained all the stuff that was kind of happening in his life, and it was incredible. So it's just, it's kind of like using empathy to, to relate to the imagery and then and then reinterpret it and put it back on canvas. It's like, it's a process. (laughs) It also sounds a bit cathartic. Definitely, yes, definitely. My job is therapeutic, very therapeutic. (laughs) Well, they must, they talk to you a lot about that too, right? Uh, They must, they must be blown away by what you're able to capture. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a unique job, but I think it really helps being an athlete. I don't think I could do it if I, if I didn't really fully relate to, to what they go through. 
So what is, where is this mural going to go when you're all done? I'm not really sure. I haven't asked the, the Whitecaps yet, but I'm excited to see, you know, what they do with it. I think I'm also going to have like little girls come down and draw themselves in the stand. So that'll be really cool. Uh, that's adorable. Now, yeah. you said that you were, you know, obviously a student athlete. You played pretty high level of soccer. What's it like? How important is it for us to encourage girls to play those sports at those at those levels? Like what kind of a difference do you think it made for you? Well, I mean, I I got one hundred twenty thousand dollars worth of free scholarship, so that's that's a big thing. You know, fifty one years ago, women because of Title Nine, we have we have scholarships now available to women. But fifty one years ago, that didn't exist. So the the women who fought for girls like me and and young girls coming up to be able to have the the opportunity to have a full ride scholarship, have their education paid for, is such a huge and an iconic thing. Like I think. There's so many opportunities now for young girls to make a living at sports, which is insane, incredible, right? Like Bar- FC Barcelona sold out a stadium of 92,000 people last year to watch a women's game. Like we are in a new era where people are really like challenging the gender equity in sport. And, and the more you watch women's football, the more you watch the game, the more you change the game. Uh, for young girls to have more opportunities to play. That is so true. You're right. So many changes in the last 10 years. Carling, where can people find your artwork? Uh, they could just Google the athlete artist or Carling Jackson art on kind of all platforms. We will do that. Hey, good luck tomorrow. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about robots because we all think that we couldn't possibly be replaced day to day in our jobs by a robot. But what happens when you ask a robot to do that? Well, you know, sometimes I do think that ignorance is bliss. That might be the case here. Our next guest did ask a robot about that. Dr. Friedrich Gutz is with us, an assistant professor in social and personality psychology at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so what did you ask this chatbot to do for you? I basically asked it to create a psychological questionnaire. Now, you need to know I'm a personality psychologist. So what I do in day-to-day life is I try to come up with good questions to ask people who they really are. Because lots of things about us, about who we are, are not directly observable. So you need to ask good questions. And back in those days when I first encountered this artificial intelligence, I was like, you know what? Maybe you could ask those questions for me. So that's where it all started. Why would you ask a robot if they could do your job, Dr. Gutz? Like, that's like asking to be replaced, isn't it? Only to some degree. Now, you know, one of the privileges of being a professor is that you have multiple jobs in one, right? You're a teacher, you're a researcher, you're part of the administration. I would not ask a robot to do all of those things. But this specific thing is something where a robot could help. So what I did is just to ask it, look, here's a question that I would usually ask, for example, to find out whether somebody is an extroverted person, you ask them, are you sociable? Do you enjoy going to parties? So I fed a few of those items that I would usually use into the robot and then said, generate more like this, ask similar questions. And I was surprised to see that nowadays these robots are actually smart enough to come up with their own unique questions that are no worse than what I would have asked myself as somebody who's had sufficient training to ask these kind of questions. Uh, Dr. Gutz, how did that make you feel? <laughs> well, uh, ambivalent. You know, I mean, if you, if you do this kind of thing, then you're asking for it, right? Like, like, you know, I knew that there was a possibility that it would be doing really well. Um, I was surprised by how well it did. And this is the predecessor of ChatGPT that's now making all those headlines. So bear in mind, this is already when we started this a few years back. Um, but this being said, these things are not perfect. Um, we 
see this all the time. Some of the responses don't make a lot of sense. They look really smart, but when you zoom in on it, it's not quite as amazing as it looks at first glance. So all in all, I feel pretty good about it. I think this is something that can complement our practices. I don't think it will replace them, and therefore I don't think it will replace me. Okay, and so what did you notice? Like, what about it surprised you? Was it more, um, was it more kind of observant than you thought it was going to be? Actually, I think what surprised me about it is the breadth of output. So um, you should bear in mind with these things, they are trained on like heaps and heaps of text. Um, this thing alone that we used has been trained on 40 gigabytes of text. That means it has all this information. In many ways, it knows more than I do. And what surprised me is the connections it could make. So, you know, when I think about extroversion, the questions I might ask to determine whether somebody is extroverted, my own biased subjective perception of extroversion will influence the questions I ask. But a robot that doesn't have this bias, that has access to all these different ways of thinking about it, can ask much more diverse and broader questions than me. And that was something that actually really impressed me. This is so interesting. So what, what do you do now with this information? Do you help get it to help you out with your work? Um, I, wrote, I wrote an academic paper. That's, you know, that's what we do. I'm primarily to alert colleagues in my field to the opportunities that exist and to say, look, this is a cool tool. And I think it could make our lives easier in some ways. Um, at the same time, I also stress that, you know, I really believe in the importance of us maintaining the skills to do these things ourselves. I think that's, that's always a potential risk with technological right. advances. And so I also say that to my students. I say, look, it's good to know that this is out there, but it's also important that I teach you how to do it yourself. Because again, these robots still need human supervision. It's important that the person who deals with the output knows what a good question looks like. Right. Um, so that's why, you know, I think it's, it's important to stress that too. And I know that there's this effort being made to see if chatbots can actually make a connection with humans, right? Is that, is that possible, do you think? Make people feel more connected? Yeah, I think that's possible. I, I do think it's really important to, to be nuanced about this. Um, and when you talk to a psychotherapist, as, as I am these days, uh, many of them will tell you that, you know, it will not go as far as replacing them. And I think that's totally true. It will, you know, a chatbot will not be the same as you going to a psychotherapist, being in this office, having this very intimate personal interaction. But I think what we can see is that sometimes on a, on a more basic level, chatbots can feel pe make people feel less lonely. They, they can, you know, feel like you're talking to somebody. It can feel like you're maybe chatting with a friend. And so to the degree that that's helping people to feel a little better about themselves and their lives, I think, yeah, it can be helpful. So do you see you being able to use this or other people being able to use this, maybe ease some of your workload? Yeah, to some degree. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get my hopes up too much. Um, I think this is something that we see in history time and time again, when a big radical innovation hits society, people often think that, you know, it will change life as we know it in a fundamental way. And I don't think this is happening here either. Um, you know, that didn't happen when, when sort of, the radio came around when the TV came around. And I think the same is going to be here. It'll change some ways of how we do things, but ultimately we'll still go about our day-to-day -day life in similar ways as we have before. Right. Isn't there a danger here that we become too reliant on this kind of technology? Absolutely. And, and you know, that's, that goes back to the point I made earlier about what I tell my students. I think it's absolutely important for us to remember how to do these things ourselves and to not just blindly follow any kind of technology. 
I believe that technology can be helpful, but it's important that you know what you're doing um, and to use it right. And in the case of AI, also to use it ethically. I just can't believe how fast this has happened too, right? Whereas before, nobody wanted to chat with somebody virtually because you could tell it was a robot. Now it feels like it's increasingly more difficult to figure out that that person you're talking to is a robot. I fully agree. Um, you know, I do think the, the pace of this innovation is mind-boggling to, to everybody I speak to and to myself as well. I wonder to some degree if the pandemic has accelerated our acceptance of these things. Like, you know, it kind of forced all of us into a more virtual life um, for, for quite a long time. And maybe that has eased our acceptance for dealing with, uh, you know, fully digital environments, including artificial intelligence. But that's just a hunch. So interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure this morning. Yeah, it was lots of fun. That's Dr. Friedrich Gutz, who's an assistant professor in social and personality psychology at the University of British Columbia. Thought he'd do a little experiment, see if a chatbot could do his job for him in terms of developing personality tests and, and questions. And turns out it could. Surprised even him by what a great job that it actually did. I don't know if people are ready, though, to start you know using a chatbot for therapy. I think that might be a little bit step too far for some. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.